and you're listening to a sermon from Bent Tree Church in Loveland, Colorado. For more information about Bent Tree, visit BentTreeChurch.com. Oh, holy God, we come to you in the matchless name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, even to be able to stand before you right now, God, in prayer. We know it's because of Jesus, through his blood, through his sacrifice, that he bought this ability for us to even talk to you. We know we have been made right because of the blood of Jesus. God, we confess our sins. Help us to walk in that forgiveness and to learn to walk closer to you more closely this week than we did last. And Father, we, your children, are just gathered here together, brothers and sisters in Christ, your church, Would you just pour out your grace through the power of your Holy Spirit right now? Help my words to be your words. Help me to just disappear behind the text of your words. May it be made manifest in our lives, your word. Oh God, we are your church, the redeemed, through your son. We ask that you bless our time together. It is in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Well, in reverence for our text being read out loud. If you're able, would you stand with me? Let's just read this. I'll read it out loud. You listen, but listen carefully. Starting in verse 28 of John 4, then the woman left her water jar, went into town and told the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They left the town and made their way to him. In the meantime, the disciples kept urging him, rabbi, eat something. But he said, I have food to eat that you don't know about. The disciples said to one another, could someone have brought him something to eat? My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work, Jesus told them. Don't you say there are still four more months and then comes the harvest? Listen to what I'm telling you. Open your eyes and look at the fields because they are ready for harvest. The reaper is already receiving, receiving pay and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper can rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap what you didn't labor for. Others labored, and you have benefited from that labor, from their labor. This is the word of God, amen? You may be seated. God, let it have its full effect on us this morning. Just to remind you of where we are, if you're just joining us, we're in the middle of this conversation that Jesus is having with this woman at the well. And just Jesus has just answered this question about where, when, and how to worship God the Father. But it was when Jesus had confronted this woman about her sin that really the conversation had gone to a new place. She had said, when the Messiah comes, he will explain all this stuff to us. So when Jesus reveals to her that he, in fact, is the Messiah, the long-promised one from the Scriptures, she believes. She is regenerated at that moment, is born again. She runs into town to tell everyone she knows she has found the Messiah, the Christ. You remember where we're at? And last week we looked at the depth right at the moment that Jesus' disciples had walked up and returned, and had seen and heard Jesus talking with this woman at the well, which was a huge social no-no, at least in their eyes. 
It was this awkward moment because the disciples didn't know what to ask Jesus about. And certainly they didn't want to ask the woman because then they would be guilty of talking to a woman and a Samaritan woman at that. That awkwardness had only increased, if you'll remember, when the disciples had tried to get Jesus to eat something. And Jesus had replied to them in verse 32. But he said, I have food to eat that you don't know about. Well, this sends the disciples into a a new round of questioning each other under their breath behind Jesus' back. And Jesus says this, or in verse 33, he says this, the disciples said to one another, could someone have brought him something to eat? But what we learned last week was Jesus is talking about something much, much deeper, isn't he? Jesus sets this moment up as this woman is gone, but would soon return as this chance to teach the disciples about what true satisfaction is. Remember, Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well had begun with him asking uh, for a drink from her, and she had said, you, sh- you shouldn't be asking me, you shouldn't even be talking to me. Jesus says, if you knew who you were talking to, you would ask from me a drink of living water. Now he's doing this again a few minutes later with the disciples, but now he's talking about food. As in, physical food and drink can satisfy for only a moment, but there is something that will truly fill them. And it was this. Jesus tells them in verse 34, he says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. The him is referring to God the Father, right? Make sure you get that. Just like he had told the woman, this water in this well will only satisfy you for a moment. Now he uses that same analogy with food and satisfying a desire. But look what else Jesus is referring to here. Jesus told them, don't you say there are still four more months and then comes the harvest? Listen to what I'm telling you. Open your eyes and look at the fields because they are ready for harvest. Some theologians viewed this as Jesus quoting a first century proverb that we just don't know about. But really what it indicates is when this conversation took place. Now growing season was six months long. Check that out. Six months long. But Jesus here says how long till the, says four months until the harvest. Well, we know the harvest is always in April at this part of the country, so four more months from that previous would be December, right? Now, don't let me confuse you. Get the picture that Jesus would be looking at with his disciples. They're standing at this well with the fields around, surrounding this in all directions. They're outside of town. They were standing in this valley looking across at the surrounding fields of waving grain in the breeze. Write this down. Jesus was demonstrating to his disciples the urgency of reaching the lost. Jesus was demonstrating to his disciples the urgency of reaching the lost. Now, don't miss the symbolism here. The fields that Jesus and and his disciples were standing in were still dark green. There were still four more months until the harvest. Are you with me? Jesus says, look. He says, I'm telling you something. He says, open your eyes and look at the fields because they're ready for harvest. Now, were the fields they were looking at ready for harvest? No. 
They were still dark green. But Jesus is saying, look, open your eyes. The disciples must be thinking, Jesus, our eyes are open. The fields are still green. It's certainly not time for harvest yet. What are you talking about here? Now, remember, Jesus is talking about why he didn't need to eat the food that they brought him because he had food that they couldn't see. He said to them in verse 34, he says, my food is what? To do the will of the one who sent me and to finish that work. Now, Jesus is telling his disciples, he says, open your eyes, your spiritual eyes. Not what you think you're looking at now, but look at the real work that you're called to do. Sometimes we say our spiritual eyes are the eyes of our heart. You ever heard that? Jesus is telling his disciples, open the eyes of your heart. Now remember, this is not just for the disciples then at that moment. It's for us right now. Jesus is teaching us until he returns. In other words, Jesus is also talking to us. He's saying, until he, I return, he said, open the eyes of your heart. It might help us to read this same passage in the English Standard Version or what we call the ESV, which is, has a subtle difference in translations. Look at the ESV reads like this. Verse 35 do you not say there are yet four, four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. That's the actual translation. What is Jesus telling them? Well, Jesus is saying, look, guys, even though there's still four more months until harvest, I tell you, the true harvest is here right now. What are the disciples seeing as they look at these fields all around them? It's going to blow your mind. They see the white clothing of the Samaritans against the brilliant green background of the grain in the fields. As the Samaritans begin to come down in mass towards the disciples, we're not told how many there were, maybe hundreds, to come find Jesus. Why are they coming? The woman has gone to tell them in their white clothes, the Samaritans would look and appear as ripening grain as they stepped down the hills like this through the grain, like the wind was blowing them. Jesus says this in verse 36. He says, the reaper is already receiving pay and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper can rejoice together. Is this cool or what? We know that Samaritans all wore, well, kind of off-white clothing. They all wore that. In the agricultural world, the same farmer who sows the seed usually reaps the harvest, right? But in the spiritual world, that's not necessarily the case. The Apostle Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 6. Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Amen? So then, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Now, he who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God, God's co-workers, you are God's field, God's building." All these Samaritans are coming down the hills across the, the fields. Jesus is saying, "Look." These guys are ready to be harvested. Who had planted the seed, though? It wasn't the disciples. They hated the Samaritans. So who was it? 
Well, was it the woman? No, I mean, she had just told them. Guys, God had called some guys to himself in the Old Testament. Guys like Moses, Elijah, King David, even recently from this John the Baptist, who many of these Samaritans had probably just heard come preach and been baptized by him. God had called all these guys from the Old Testament, even up through John the Baptist. And since Jesus is God, as the Son of God, you could even say Jesus planted the seed in these guys because he is the Word of God, right? The prophets of the Old Testament had simply preached the Word of God, which pointed towards Jesus. They planted the seed. Look in verse 37. For in this case, the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. Jesus is saying, look guys, look, the Samaritans, they're your harvest right here, right now. And when the harvest comes in, both the harvester and the guy who planted the seed, their roles, they both celebrate because God is the one that brought the growth. Jesus reminds his disciples that he is the one in complete control. He is setting this up. So verse 38, I sent you to reap what you didn't labor for. Others have labored and you have benefited from their labor. Who is he talking about? The guys that planted the seed. Jesus has set this thing up so that the work of bringing in the wheat, if you will, is the job of all of us. None of us can say, look what we did. Because it was Jesus that is making it all work together. He is the one who has called us to the task of Plant, grow, and harvest. Thank you. It takes the one planting the seed. It takes the guy watering the seed. And it takes the harvester. But God is the one that makes the seed grow. We see that. The sower does his labor in the anticipation of the coming harvest. But the reaper must not forget that the harvest he enjoys is the fruit of another's toil. We as Christ followers can never forget as we're constantly planting seed, just planting seed of the gospel, helping it as it grows, watering the wheat, right? One, success in the end depends on the work of those who have gone before us, right? They planted the seed. And two, although we might see rare instances where we plant the seed of the gospel and we reap it quickly, the truth is we don't know until the final harvest when we are in heaven or listen or not. Remember, our job as Christians is to plant the seed, water, and harvest. But none of that can take place without the third person of the Holy Spirit calling someone from spiritual death into spiritual life. In Christ Jesus. We have to remember that it's always the gospel, the story of Jesus' life, the offer of redemption that we are planting as the seed. That's the seed, the gospel. When we talk about the doctrines of grace and reformed theology of how someone is actually saved, here is what we know. In our sharing of the gospel, we plant the seed, and it is only God that can make the seed grow. The gospel story, the seed is the gospel story, the life-changing message of Jesus. We cannot make the seed grow. What we mean is that we can't make someone into a Christian by how well we argue 
Or another way to say it is that we can't argue someone into becoming a Christian. Make sense? God is sovereign in who he saves. How he saves. When he saves. And what I mean is that not only does God choose us to have life in him, follow him, and come to life in his sovereignty. God is also sovereign, listen, in when that happens and who it happens through. You with me? As Jesus tells his disciples, he says, look, these Samaritan people, they're coming down. The harvest is ready right now. Jesus has set that up, that moment up, with these Samaritan people to be saved, and those disciples are to do the harvesting. Do you get that? The timing is not a mistake. It's not a chance encounter. Jesus is going, whoa, we got a chance here, guys. No, Jesus has set this up. He's sovereign. There's nothing left to chance here. God is in control when he regenerates them, when he calls someone to, to life from spiritual death. And God is in control of even who witnesses and plants and helps water and helps harvest them. He is the one that's calling them, him, them to himself. What I'm telling you, there are no accidents. God is not wringing his hands going, oh, I don't know if this is going to work or not. And just like Jesus set up that moment with the disciples to minister and to gather the harvest of the Samaritans, he sets up his followers to preach to them the gospel. The people that you are around, listen to me carefully, lift up your eyes, the harvest is ready. There are no accidents. The circles you run in, no accident. Lift up your eyes. The fields are white. They're ready for harvest. The neighborhood you live in, Jesus says, open the eyes of your heart. The school where you attend, there's the harvest there. Can you see it? Or the bowling league. Open the eyes of, you, uh, of your heart. Maybe the other parents on your child's soccer team or at, at dance rehearsal. Can you see the harvest of them coming down? God, God set that up for you. There are no accidents. God has placed you there for the harvest. Jesus said, look, the harvest is ready, and it's time to get to work, folks. Sometimes we plant the seed of the gospel, and we just don't know if they get it. We don't know if they're going to be saved. We just plant the seed. Sometimes we come to people that have had the seed planted and it grows and all we need to do is reap. We just harvest. That's awesome when that happens, right? But somewhere, somehow, by someone, Jesus set it all up that the gospel seed has been planted in their heart and that was no mistake. What we're saying is that God is sovereign or has control over who, how, and when the gospel is shared. Listen to the Apostle Paul when he says this in Romans 10 verse 14. How then can they call on him that they have not believed in him? It believed in. And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. 
but not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? So faith comes from what is, look, heard, and what is heard comes through the message about Christ. But I ask, did they not hear? Yes, they did. Their voice has gone out to the whole earth and the words to the ends of the world. Our job as believers is to take the gospel to the ends of the world. Amen? Some other things besides amen you can say. I like that. Come on. I agree. It's always the power of God at work through the gospel message that brings about the planting, the growing, and the reaping. And let me just say, we are always so blessed, so blessed when someone is born again as the result of the Holy Spirit bringing life through the gospel message. And let me just address a complaint that I've heard from time, time to time against the doctrines of grace that is called reformed doctrine. And it's this. If God chooses who he's going to save, then that means that people who believe in reformed doctrine believe that you don't have to share the gospel. That's just wrong. And we find it to be so wrong in how we're talking about it here. Our job in sharing the gospel message is preordained by God. It is our literal job as believers in Christ Jesus while we are alive on this planet. Your other job is secondary to this. God does not ordain, not only does he ordain who will be saved from their sin, he also is ordained how they will be saved and when they will be saved and who's going to bring the gospel to them. But let me just ask you a question. If we don't believe in Jesus as our Savior and Lord, is that our own fault? Are we still guilty? Yes. We are sinful. Every last one of us deserves hell. I didn't think I'd get an amen on that one. So why does he choose to save some and not others? Because look, we all agree that some are saved in the end and some aren't. We all agree on that, right? Not everyone's going to heaven. That's universalism. That's a cult. That's wrong. Everyone agrees on whether reformed or not, some people are saved, some people aren't in the end. The people that believe in the gospel message are the ones that are saved and the ones that don't believe remain in their sin. So again, why does he choose to save some and not others? We know ultimately it is for his glory. It's also why God uses anything that he ever does. It's always for his glory. But in the short term, when it's difficult to see why some are saved and others aren't, well then, it's just hard to understand. Like, why don't they follow Jesus? But we don't know what he, but what we do know is that he is both sovereign and he has a plan. Providence. We know that he is a loving God, right? And we know he's in complete control. Let me tell you, there's not a molecule in the universe that is not under the control of God. Otherwise, that molecule would be bigger than God. If God's going, I don't know how this is going to work out, 
That thing's bigger than God. You see what I'm saying? I know personally that I've prayed for certain people to be saved for years. To be witness to them. Share the gospel with them. I've sat with people for hours. And still they go, they reject Jesus. And I go, I'm going to give it my best shot. Like I'm a pastor, I'm trained. I'm going to do it. And nada. You know what I mean? And yet then there are people that I never thought who would ever get saved that were born right around me. And boom, they get saved. Like I'm going, I don't, how did that work, God? I've said it before, but hear me out. The best question is not really, why does God choose to save some and not others? That's not the best question. The best question is this, why does God choose to save anyone at all? Do you hear me? Let me just be frank for a moment. I'm usually Paul, I'll be frank. The complaint should be made the other way against those that don't believe in Reformed doctrine, quite frankly. Because it's the Reformers By and large, the Reformed faith that have done, listen to me, the lion's share of missionary work around the world for the last 500 years. They're the ones that have done plant, grow, and harvest. And I think the reason is, if you think that you have to save someone by how well you share the gospel message, like the pressure is on you, and most of the time person goes, I don't think I can do it. The pressure's on me, so I'm not going to share it at all. But if you think that the gospel message is a way to find and rescue brothers and sisters in Christ who are currently lost, and that is only the Holy Spirit that saves them, we just have to go and be used by the Holy Spirit to find those lost children of God. Folks, God saves people through us sharing the gospel message. We just share the message of Jesus. God brings the growth. We can't. By the way, you believe this even if you think you don't. You believe this if you have ever, ever prayed for someone to be saved. Come on now. At least to some level, you believed in the doctrines of grace outlined in Reformed theology when you say, God, would you save this child of mine? Or this friend. Or this guy at work. Because think about it. What are you asking God to do when you pray for someone's salvation? You're asking God to change their heart. Right? Am I right? Think about what you're asking when you pray for someone's salvation. You're asking God to wake them from the dead. You're asking God to give that dead person spiritual life in God so that they can believe. That's what you're asking. Or in the words of Jesus, you're asking God for someone to be born again, regenerated, born from above. Because if you don't believe in the doctrines of grace, why are you praying for someone's salvation? Are you praying to that person? Like, I hope you decide to get saved. Of course not. By the way, how do we know when they are saved? Well, the Apostle Paul says it this way a few verses before this in verse 9 of chapter 10 of Romans. He says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart resulting in the righteousness and one confesses with the mouth resulting in salvation. Now, 
Can people fake us out with that? Yeah. And even a lot of times, I think they fake themselves into believing, yeah, I'm a Christian because I prayed some prayer. But listen, you can't fake God out. You just can't. The answer is no. He can see your heart every single time. Look with, at, look with me for just a moment here in John chapter 12. In this passage, Jesus is facing his death soon. Look what he says to his followers in verse 23. Jesus replied to them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Talking about his death and resurrection. Truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. The one who loves his life will lose it, and the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there my servant also will be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Jesus takes this picture of the seed being planted, first of himself being crucified. He would be placed in the tomb, but would be raised to life on the third day. Praise God. In other words, his death as a kind of seed would produce much fruit. Then Jesus takes that same picture and he says, look, look, if you follow me, you will have to do the same thing. You will have to be the one who gives up his life for the gospel. And not only that, the one who tries to keep his life and does not plant it, in other words, the faker will lose his life in the end. But back to John 4, with Jesus looking up, he's looking up at these green fields and these guys start walking down all in white. They're the Samaritans walking down with these white clothes on. Jesus is telling these guys, he said, look, your job's at hand. Don't be blind to the real work. The gospel is for all the world. It doesn't have to be just people that look like you. Doesn't have to be just Jewish people. It's even these people that the Jews hated, right? The Samaritans. Jesus said, These are mine as well. Let me say that sadly there are some who call themselves Christians and even believe themselves to be saved, but they have never learned that true satisfaction that Jesus is talking about here only comes in yielding totally to God's will and getting rid of our own. True satisfaction in life comes in spending life in the service of God, being willing to do whatever God calls them to do. Let's jump back to verse 34 and look at it again at the English Standard Version this time. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you, uh, do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up. Lift up your eyes and you'll see the fields are white for harvest. That's the literal translation. They're white. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great preacher, described this passage as the golden sentence. What he was meaning here is the expression of what Jesus' life and purpose was really all about. And what our lives should be about as well. And that is living out our lives with above all else to do God's will. Jesus, folks, Jesus pointed out to these followers that the work to be done was coming to them. The age of harvest was walking towards them. And until Jesus returns and takes his people home, that's our job as well.
Here's the thing. The end will come. The date is set on God's calendar for Jesus' return. We don't know when that will be. Maybe tomorrow. Maybe 100 years from now. But whatever it is, the door is shut then. The opportunity is over. We have to look at the world the way Jesus did with supernatural eyes that God gives us through his Holy Spirit. Open the eyes of our heart, Lord. With those eyes of our heart open, watch for the people that God has put in your path. There are no accidental conversations. None. So let's watch for those conversations. Watch for those people. Will you do that for Jesus? Will you? Just like it's a real question. Answer. Will you do it for Jesus? Will you look up and see the harvest in the field where you live? Jesus has placed them there for you to harvest or plant the seed. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come as one Many of us and yet one, your church. God, I, I just sense that you are raising up your church. Bent tree, yes, but your church, the real church, to differentiate itself from all the fakers out there by being the light of the world to a hurting dead world that we would share life and light to all those around us. God, we pray that you would make us into the people you have called us to be. That we would plant, that we would water, that we would harvest. God, give us supernatural eyes to be able to see the people in our family that need you. God, the people in our work and clubs and neighbors, God. God, we'll leave the growth to you. We know that we can't save them. We know that they can't save themselves. But we know you can, Jesus. So call them to life through your message that we share. As you just continue to pray, if you are not a Christian, you can just look up here at me for a moment. Let me just say with this, like what are you waiting on? Like what is it? You waiting till right before you die? To then become a Christian? Here's my point. Jesus says true satisfaction, real purpose in life is following him, doing the work of, of the Father. All those other things you're chasing, they won't give you life. They'll satisfy for a moment, but not the long haul. Why don't you turn to Jesus? What saves you is not your repentance, listen to me, from the sins you're doing. The saving comes from your repentance of not believing before and now believing in Jesus. Does that make sense? If you believe in Jesus as the Son of God, what you're saying there is that you believe God raised him from the dead. You believe that Jesus is God. You believe that he died for your sins, taking them to the cross, nailing them there. If that's true, simply say, I believe. I believe, Jesus, you are the Son of God. I trust that you nailed all my sins to the cross. And get this. 
that he takes his goodness, his righteousness, and he gives you that righteousness. So when God looks at you, he doesn't see the messed up you anymore. He sees the perfect you. I know it's crazy. It's called imputed righteousness. He takes your sin, nails it to the cross. He gives you his righteousness. So will you believe? Will you trust Jesus? Simply pray a prayer. The prayer doesn't save you. Believing saves you. The prayer is just your mechanism of talking to God. Say, God, I believe. Say, I give you my life. I got some screwed up wants. Some screwed up desires, and I know it. Will you start to give me a new heart, a new mind? Just pray that. Show me how to live for you, God. Then end your prayer like this. Well, God, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. Help me to live this life you've called me to live. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you ever want to look up here for a moment, take this little cup, carefully open that little top piece, and it reveals the bread, and then you can kind of carefully open the, the bottom flap, and the juice is right there. Just kind of hold those, take the bread out. This is communion or what we call the Lord's Supper. The night Jesus was betrayed by one of his own, he, he took the bread and he broke it. Snap that. You hear it all over the room? Jesus' body was broken. Jesus took that bread, he broke it. He said, this represents my body broken for you. If you're a believer... You take this. If you're not a believer, don't take this. This is the body of Christ broken for you. Take and eat. And then he took a cup of wine. He said, this wine represents my blood poured out for you. Now remember, this is the day before. The disciples didn't get all the meaning until after Jesus' resurrection. Jesus says, do though this to remember me. And they're going to remember what? He's talking about the crucifixion as blood flowed from his head, his hands, the nail holes in his feet, his side. He says, this blood is for the forgiveness of sins. It washes your sins away. Do you see the picture there? As you taste the sweetness of this juice, as we take it, remember the sweetness of Jesus' love taking your place. This is the blood of Christ. Take and drink it. Heavenly Father, we remember what you have done for us in your love that when we were ready to spit in your face that you loved us enough to send your son Jesus to die to be sacrificed as the perfect lamb being sacrificed for our sins. We remember that and we celebrate it now. God, help us to be the light of the gospel to a dead and hurting world as we remember the blood given to us. 
given to those people in the world. Help us to be the tool to find them. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Bentry Church. To get connected at Bentry and for more information, please visit BentryChurch.com.